Let me also say Happy New Year, Happy New Year, and um, it's amazing, we got to begin 2023 by being in church on a Sunday, the very first day of this year was on the Lord's Day, and how appropriate that we get to spend the very last day of this year also in the Lord's house together as a faith family. I'm so thankful. I don't know what this year has held for you and for your family. Uh, perhaps there's been unexpected joys, unexpected sorrows, but isn't it true that no matter our experience this past year, the Lord has been faithful, Amen. and I'm so thankful that we can worship Him. I hope you did have a Merry Christmas, and I know many of our folks are still traveling today, and um, I hope and pray that they have just a wonderful time with family and with friends and then life gets back to normal this week with going back to work, going back to school, all the regular schedule. You heard Pastor Jonathan mention all of the things that we've got planned uh, this upcoming year. And, you know, I did see on my, my phone uh, a week from today, there's a four-letter word, I think, in the forecast, perhaps snow. And so I don't know what the schedule for Sunday will hold, but I will just go ahead and just put this disclaimer out there. Uh, just stay up to date with our social media pages. If you don't follow us on Facebook, be sure you, you, you go to our social media page like that. Uh, subscribe to our church-wide emails. And so we'll keep you in the know about all of the potential schedule changes that we might. I'll be honest, I've gotten used to not having the 830 service the last two weeks. I've gotten plumb lazy as a preacher. And so uh, wouldn't mind it at all. Um, but nonetheless, I'm so glad that you're here today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and find your place with me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. All throughout the month of December, uh, we've been looking at various characters that are found in the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth. And today we come to the very last character that I'll mention before we move on to some other things. And I've had a few folks ask me, well, where are we going? Uh, what are you going to be preaching come January? You know, for some time, I've really wrestled uh, with preaching through the book of Romans. And so beginning next week, Lord willing, we're here and um, we're not snowed in, that kind of thing. I do want to begin sort of a verse-by-verse -verse study through Paul's letter to the Romans. And so in nearly 22 years of pastoral ministry, I've preached through many books of both Old Testament, New Testament, but I've never attempted to tackle the book of Romans. And so uh, reasons for that are multiplied, but I can't think of a more appropriate place to be, especially as it deals with the gospel and the profound truth of all that's involved in our salvation. And so I hope and pray that you'll be here for that Invite someone to come with you or to tune in, and uh, we'll begin that, God willing, next week. But I do want to conclude this series on the various characters that are found in the Christmas narrative, some of whom are more familiar that we've looked at, 
others perhaps that you have never really considered as being a part of the Christmas story. We began by taking a look at the prophet, and we saw how Christmas really is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And in particular, we looked at the prophet Isaiah and what Isaiah had to say concerning the miraculous nature of Christ's virgin birth as it was foretold in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Then we looked at the woman and we considered the events of Christmas from Mary's perspective uh, in in Luke chapter 1, her remarkable account of what it must have been like for the angel of God to appear to inform her that she's going to be the mother of God's own Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, from there we looked at an unfamiliar character as far as the events of Christmas are concerned, but he's there in the shadows nonetheless, and that's the dragon. And we went to Revelation chapter 12, and there in that magnificent prophetic passage where the Apostle John receives a vision that really is a summary of history and Satan's attempt to keep Christmas from happening. Uh, He has attempted to keep the nations of the world in darkness, to prevent the coming of God's own Son into the world. And so we looked at Christmas from the perspective of the enemy. And from there, we considered the events of the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. We considered the angels and how the angels were there announcing the news of the Savior's birth to the shepherds. And then in our Christmas Eve service last week, we looked at the child, the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He is the hero of redemptive history. Uh, The whole Bible is the story of Jesus. And and, uh, the prophets wrote about his coming. The apostles in the New Testament uh, write four gospel accounts as well as the epistles that are written or were grounded in doctrine. But it's all centered in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here in Matthew chapter 2, the last character or characters that I want to take a look at are really some familiar characters as far as the Christmas story is concerned, but what they represent may not necessarily be as familiar to you. And of course, the characters that I'm talking about are the wise men, but here's what I want you to understand. The wise men in the Christmas story really represent the nations. And so the character of this particular message that I want to emphasize is the nations of the world. What does Christmas mean for the nations of humanity? By the way, we've sung it all month, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, The gospel is a message of good news that is to be announced worldwide. It It is reflective of God's global agenda in redeeming a people for himself that's made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and tongue. And so it's interesting that Matthew, writing his gospel from a Jewish perspective, Matthew is the one who tells us that these wise men from the east are present uh, somewhere around the birth of Christ. They're not there with the shepherds. I know we, we like to put them in the nativity scene and that kind of thing, and that's, that's good. But You'll notice that Matthew chapter 2 begins in this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so Mary and Joseph at this point, they're not there. 
in the stable. Jesus is not lying in the manger. Uh, The shepherds, they've returned back to their fields and their flocks. The Christmas tree's been taken down. The lights are put up. It's, it's business as usual, and yet Mary and Joseph, they're still in Bethlehem. They're in a house. We know that they're in a house, and so we don't necessarily know how long they've been staying in Bethlehem, but we know that Jesus has been born, and they're in a place where there is some more secure lodging over their heads. And so it's after Christmas, after the birth itself, that these wise men appear on the scene. Now, I know that in the room, there are people probably in three general categories when it comes to post-Christmas activities. All right, now some of you are experiencing that post-Christmas stress syndrome. You know, the stress that's associated with all of the festivities being over, the family, they've come, they've gone, uh, they're back home. Maybe you've got the lonelies. Uh, Maybe discouragement has set in. If that's you, and you fall into that category of experiencing the post-Christmas stress syndrome, then what we find in this passage of Scripture is going to be good news for you the whole year round. Now, others of you, you, you've already taken down your Christmas lights. In fact, you did it Christmas night. You took your tree down. You took your decorations down. The tree was at the end of the driveway ready for the trash guy to pick it up uh, Tuesday morning. The third category of you, you're not going to take your Christmas stuff down till Easter. Let's just be honest, all right? But seriously, what I want you to consider is that these wise men, they show up after the events of the birth, but their appearance is very, very significant, and it too is fulfillment of prophecy. So notice with me what Matthew writes, beginning in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. The Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying... Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
And so these wise men from the east who show up in town uh, searching for the newborn king, they represent the nations of the world who were there present at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I imagine most of you are familiar with the hymn that was written by John Henry Hopkins back in the 1800s, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And then you know the chorus, star of wonder, star of light, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect life, light. Now, the wise men mentioned here in the text They're well-to-do men from the east, leading leading figures from the east. Technically, they were not kings in the sense that perhaps you and I would understand a king to be. And technically, nowhere does the text say that there were three. I actually heard that there were four, but one guy was turned away because he brought a fruitcake to the party. So... (laughs) But in all seriousness, these kings represent, you might could say they represent the upper class or the wealthy among society. And and if you think about that, you've got all three social classes really represented at the birth of Jesus, which is really a reminder that Jesus came for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came to suffer and die and save those from every social class. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done in life. Thank God that Jesus is a Savior for the whole wide world. And so what I want to emphasize is that these wise men from the East, they're not Jewish, but they're Gentiles. So that both Jew and Gentile are now represented in the Christmas narrative. And so in that sense, they represent the nations of the world who will all one day come and worship before the Lord Jesus Christ. So that what you have here is really a prophetic foreshadowing of of the worship of the world that rightfully belongs to the Son of God himself. The psalmist said this in Psalm 86, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great. And you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Do you know that God intentionally made the nations? Acts chapter 17, uh, where the apostle Paul, as he's there on Mars Hill, and he's witnessing to those those high-browed men of Athens, uh, he says in verse 26, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And Paul makes the point there uh, on Mars Hill that only God's own son is worthy and deserving of the world's worship. And it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your social class. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. The Bible says that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that what we see represented in these Wise men from the east prefigures that future promise when indeed every knee will bow before Jesus. Now I want you to notice a few things specifically from this passage. 
Number one, notice with me the truth that these wise men were seeking. What is it exactly that they're seeking? Now, you can imagine that they could really get the attention of those in Herod's palace when they show up in Jerusalem from the east, visitors from another country, asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And, and they say that they've seen his star when it rose in the east, and now they've come to worship him. And so the identity then of these men from the east is something that we need to pay close attention to. You know the wise men are a standard feature in the nativity story. And yet there's still not a whole lot that we know about these guys. We're not told anything in particular about what nation they were from or what their ethnicity were for that matter. The text simply says they were wise men from the east. And literally the word that's used there translated wise men, it's magi, uh, which refers to those who through investigation and interpretation study the stars or the movements of heavenly bodies. So that magi, this was a term used in reference to oriental philosophers and advisors. Verse 1 says that they came from the east, which more than likely was Persian territory in what was once the Babylonian Empire, what's now modern-day Iraq and Iran. Uh, scholar A.T. Robertson has said that the idea seems to be that of astrologers. So that Babylon was the home of astrology, but we only know that the men were from the east, whether that be Arabia, whether that be Babylon, Persia, or elsewhere. Now, do you know that there's only one other book in the Bible that mentions the Magi or wise men and, and associates them with positions of government influence? You know what book of the Bible it is? It's the book of Daniel. Daniel refers to wise men and suggests that they were among the highest ranking officials in all of the Babylonian Empire. Later, they were also leading officials in the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 says that the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over the wise men of Babylon. So that Daniel was in a place of influence over the wise men of the east in his day. He became their chief administrator. And from what we know about Daniel, Daniel was very outspoken when it came to his faith in God, wasn't he? It was Daniel who interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in which there was this stone that was cut out uh, without human hands that struck the image of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream and destroyed it. And all of that was a vision of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Daniel later receives the vision of one like the Son of Man who's receiving an everlasting kingdom from God Most High, a kingdom that will never pass away. So that, for all we know, it could be because of the witness of Daniel that the Eastern Magi came to learn something about the character and the purposes of the God of Israel. I like to think that it was Daniel and Daniel's influence that perhaps began a tradition of belief in the God of Israel among these Eastern Magi. And let me tell you something. Your witness for Jesus matters a whole lot more than you think it does. No matter where you are, where you go, someone is watching you. And they're going to come to learn something or know something about the God that you worship 
based upon what they see in your own life, in your own witness. Would to God that every single one of us not take for granted the opportunity, the privilege that we have, the place of influence where God has placed us, the vocational calling that he's placed upon our lives, and use all of that and leverage it all for the sake of the gospel among the nations. I'm going to show you in just a minute that it, it, God desires every single Christian to be a missionary. I think it was Spurgeon who said that every, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. It's not up for debate whether or not you and I are missionaries. You and I have a witness. God has left us in the world as the church, as believers, for the purpose of bearing witness ultimately to the nations of the world. And so the identity then of these wise men and then the interest of these wise men is seen here in the text. And their interest is seen through the questions that they ask. Notice how they're interested in the whereabouts of the one who had been born king of the Jews. For they saw his star in the east. In fact, that's the very first question that's asked in the pages of the New Testament. Where is the king? Isn't that a good question to ask? It ought to be the very first question that you ponder deeply in your own life. Where is the king? How can I find the king? In all of the stuff of life, how is it that I can keep Jesus Christ first and foremost? Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And so what was it then that provoked their interest? Well, as they were studying the stars, there was the appearance of a star there in the east that guide these wise men to the place where Jesus was. A few years ago, you know, there was this alignment that happened between Jupiter and Saturn. And everybody was calling it the Christmas star. Do you remember that? I remember we were visiting uh, Anita's parents, and they've got one of these big, massive telescopes, and so they live on the side of a mountain. And we were out there that night. It was December. It had to be, I don't know, minus 500 degrees. And we were out there trying to get a good glimpse of it, and you could see it through the telescope. But, you know, I don't think that that's what this was here in the text. I don't think it was the alignment of Jupiter or Saturn for that matter. I'm of the conviction that it was a supernatural occurrence that served as the fulfillment of prophecy. Amen. You say, what do you mean? Well, Numbers 24, verse 17. The Bible says that a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall arise out of Israel. So that the coming king who was spoken of prophetically in Numbers would be associated with the appearance of the star. And the passage goes on to describe how this king would be one who has dominion. He would be one who delivers his people from the grip of the enemy. The nations of the world would all come and bow before him. And this is something that the psalmist writes about in many of the psalms. The prophet Isaiah has something to say about this in Isaiah chapter 60. Listen to this. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth, deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now listen, the prophet says that Gentiles shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be nursed at your side. 
Then you shall see and become radiant. Your heart shall swell with joy. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come unto you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. They will bring gold and incense, and they will proclaim the praises of the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? That here, prophetically, Isaiah is saying that the kings of the earth, the nations of the world, they're going to come and they're going to bow before Israel's king. And specifically, they're going to bring him gifts. They're going to bring gold. They're going to bring uh, uh, incense. There's no mention of myrrh, though, in that particular passage because this is pointing forward to a future fulfillment in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ post-suffering, post-resurrection, post-ascension, when he returns to rule and reign again. That's what we're looking forward to with hope. And so Isaiah's prophecy foretold that the nations and Gentiles from the nations of the world, they would one day come to the light of God's people. And they're going to bring gifts, gifts for the purpose of worship. And so what you see here, folks, with these magi, it's God's global agenda. You know, we're going to read the Bible through again. We've done that for many years now. You've done that now for several years. But I really hope that in 2024, that when you read through the story of Scripture, that you really focus in on the global agenda that God himself has. The redemptive purpose of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of God for the nations of the world that's reflected in the overarching story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. What begins in a garden in Genesis one day is going to end in a city, the new Jerusalem. And in that city, every nation, every tribe, every tongue is going to be represented singing hallelujah, worthy is the Lamb of God. And we're going to join in that chorus. And so the intention then of these magi, they've come seeking the truth, seeking the King of Israel. They've come to worship him. Now, notice the second thing, and that's the trouble that they encounter. They show up with this news that they've come to worship the newborn king. But that news and the joy of that news is not really celebrated by everybody who hears it. Because there's an illegitimate king who has assumed the throne for himself. If they've come to worship the infant king who's been born, well, that infant king and news of that infant king is going to be perceived as a threat by the illegitimate king who had usurped that throne for himself. And I'm referring to Herod the Great. And you'll notice his concern there in verse number 3. When he hears what these wise men from the east are saying, he's troubled in all Jerusalem with him. In fact, that word troubled there means to be stirred up. It's the same Greek term that's used in John 5, 7 to refer to the pool of Bethesda as it would be stirred up, as the waters would be troubled or stirred up. And so here you've got Jerusalem, here you've got Herod, you've got perhaps his cabinet. They're all troubled now because you've got these Gentiles from another country who've come and they're saying, we've heard that the king has been born. Well, what does that mean for the guy who's assumed that title for himself? Because Herod was a usurper. He was a Roman puppet king who had no legitimate claim to the Davidic throne. In fact, from what we know about him in history, he was an insecure man. His insecurity led him to have his own wife killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. 
even had his own sons killed. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come and gave orders that they be killed at the time of his death so that there would at least be some people who were mourning when Herod came to die. So here you see that Herod, he's really concerned because there are really only two options to respond to what these wise men are saying. Either you surrender and recognize that the true king has been born, and you join these wise men in their pursuit of that king, or you go into attack mode. And from what we know, that's exactly what Herod is going to do. And so, he's not willing to bow the knee. He wants to reserve the right to remain on the throne. And by the way, there are a lot of people just like Herod in that respect. But when it comes to the news of the newborn king, the fact that Jesus Christ is king and Lord, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord, there are a lot of people who see that as a threat because they want to reserve the right to run their own life. They want to determine their own view of issues such as sexuality. They want to sit upon the throne of their life. They don't want Jesus to sit upon the throne of their life. But my friend, you can't have it both ways. And, and, and listen, Jesus is not someone that you receive now as your Savior and then embrace him as your Lord at some point later. No, to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior is to bow the knee to the kingship and the lordship of the only one who has the right to rule and reign and run your life. And you'll discover through slavery to Jesus Christ that there is remarkable freedom, freedom unlike any other freedom when you bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Herod, what does he do? Well, he pretends to be a worshiper. He calls his counselors together and he inquires of his counselors where exactly the Christ was to be born. And and pay attention to the fact that Herod's men know what the scriptures say. Look there at verses 4, 5, and 6. In fact, they even quote Micah 5, 2, which predicted Christ's birth in Bethlehem. I mean, the prophecy couldn't have been any clearer. The wise men, they've traveled hundreds of miles because they know that the king has been born. But here you have the scribes and the leading religious minds of the day who are only six miles away, and they're indifferent to it all. Must have been a head-scratcher for these wise men. I mean, how could these religious scholars who had such access and information about Christ have no interest when it comes to finding him? And listen, it would be really puzzling if we were not that familiar. Able people with access to the Bible, but really indifferent to what it says. And so this small group of Gentile pagans put Jerusalem scholars to open shame. And so here's the thing, if Herod is representative of of, of those who are antagonistic to the lordship of Jesus, then you might could say that his men and the chief priest of Jerusalem, they represent those who are apathetic to it all. Well, they know what the Bible says, but it doesn't really occupy a central place in their minds and in their hearts. Their lives are not motivated by the truth of who Jesus is. It's all just become secondhand truth second-hand knowledge. They've got a shallow and superficial attachment to religion, but there's no real vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus. 
And so what does Herod do about all of this? Well, he comes up with this plan. He says, you go find him. You send word back so that I can join you and worship him. And he has no intention of worshiping or bowing his knee to Jesus. The only thing that he's concerned about is preserving his own little kingdom. So there's the truth then that these wise men are seeking. There's the trouble that they encounter. And then notice third, the treasures that they bring. After listening to the king, they go on their way. The Bible says the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they respond with great joy. They go into the house. They see the child there with Mary, his mother. And notice this, they fall down and worship him. If that's not a direct claim as far as the deity of Jesus Christ, I don't know what is. Because they recognize that this is, this is not simply a, a mere mortal that they're bowing before, but this is, this is the God-man. This is God with us, Emmanuel, and he, as such, he is worthy and deserving of our worship. And so they're worshiping Jesus. They present gifts to Jesus. And what are those gifts? Well, notice, listen, you've come to a kid's Christmas play, you know exactly what those gifts are. Gold, Frankenstein, and mermaids, right? (laughs) But gold, listen, gold is a gift that's fit for a king. If we were to go back to that wonderful Christmas hymn that we sing, We Three Kings, you would notice that the second stanza of that song says this, Born a king on Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. And so what more appropriate of a gift is there for a king than the gift of gold? And these wealthy men from the east who were worshipers, they come bearing their gifts and they bring him the gift of gold because he is indeed the king. And as the king, he's the one who has the right to rule us. Gold reveals that Jesus has come to rule our lives. And then notice frankincense. This is a gift that's fit for a priest. You'll notice in verse 11 that they bring him frankincense. Again, that that hymn that we sing, the third stanza says this, Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. In the Old Testament, frankincense was a fragrance that was used in the grain offerings that were offered in the temple. Before there was ever an offering that was given in worship, uh, it was applied, frankincense was applied in order to ensure a sweet-smelling aroma. And in that way, it's, it's really symbolic of the prayers of God's people as they ascend to God, who is indeed pleased to hear them and respond to them. Origen, one of the church fathers, said that frankincense was the incense of deity. And so if gold is a gift fit for a king, frankincense, this is a gift that's fit for a priest. And, and, and it reveals the fact that as our priest, Jesus has come to represent us. You know that in order for you as a sinful man or a woman to have an audience with a holy God, you've got to have a go-between. You've got to have a mediator. You've got to have a high priest who ushers you into the presence of Almighty God. Did you know that that's what Jesus does for us? 
He is our high priest who gives us an audience so that we have access now to the throne room of heaven itself and we come through Jesus who's opened unto us a new and living way through his own death and through his own resurrection. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, but he was without sin. That means that he knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to suffer and be destitute. And that's something that brings confidence to my life, to know that I have a high priest in heaven who is identified with me, who knows what it is to hurt, who knows what you face, who knows the struggles that you have. You say, Pastor, I've got that post-Christmas stress that you talked about a minute ago. I'm lonely. I've not seen my family in a long time. 2023 has been a hard year for me and my family. I've lost someone that I love, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a child. Doesn't it bring great courage and comfort to your heart to know that there's a high priest in heaven who knows and who comforts you and who intercedes for you? Thank God for our high priest. Gold is a gift fit for a king. Frankincense is a gift fit for a priest. But what about myrrh? Myrrh is a gift that's fit for a sacrifice. The last stanza of that song that we sing, We Three Kings, listen to this. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone cold tomb. Now, of all of the gifts that these magi bring, this gift would have been the most perplexing because myrrh was an antiseptic that was used to embalm the dead. To imagine how strange this would be, imagine someone shows up at the hospital to celebrate the news of your baby's birth, but they bring funeral flowers or or embalming fluid because that's what myrrh represents. And, and, And if you didn't know the whole story... And why this baby has been born in the first place, that would be a very strange gift to bring a baby. But you see, it's, it's, it's a reminder of the fact that this baby has been born for one purpose, and that purpose is to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Our salvation required that his perfect life be offered up in our place. And let me tell you something. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was not in vain. No, listen, the Apostle John, uh, when he was given a vision of the title deed of the earth that belongs to the Lamb of God, Revelation chapter 5, here's what he writes. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John says that he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him that was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the elders fell down before the lamb, each holding their harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. Now listen, here it is. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
so that John sees that the sacrifice of the Lamb of God will not be in vain, but by his death, he has purchased for God people from every ethnicity, every background, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's God's global agenda. And so the gift of myrrh reveals that Jesus has come to redeem us. Gold, he's come to rule us. Frankincense, he's come to represent us. But myrrh, my friend, he's come, he's come to redeem us. But you see, let me tell you something. A dead Savior couldn't save anyone if he remained dead. I love the last stanza of that wonderful song. Listen to this. Glorious now, behold him rise. King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah sounds throughout the earth and skies. I'm telling you, thank God for the final stanza of the gospel, the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ because without it, there would be no hope for you and me. He's alive, he's ruling, and he's coming again. And one day we're going to reign with him. Now let me give you two things and I'm gonna gonna finish up with this. What does all of this mean for us? Two things. Number one, the nations of the world are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. You need to know that. The nations of this world, filled with turmoil though they are, and you hear about it every evening when you turn on the news or when you scroll social media. There's a lot of turmoil in our world. But never forget the fact that the nations of the world are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. God's ultimate purpose in redemption involves redeeming for himself worshipers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Because you see, God the Father promised Abraham that through his seed, through his descendant, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And God's longing for the worship of the nations. He deserves the worship of the nations. In that great messianic psalm, Psalm 2, the psalmist says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So that what we have right here, folks, this is, this is the story of a God who's on a redemptive mission and he will not stop until the bride of Jesus Christ is complete and it's made up of every ethnic group who will all one day gather around the throne of the Lamb of God. The nations of the world are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And then the second thing that I'll, I'll mention is this. The nations of the world are the mission field for the local church. If Jesus is deserving of the worship of nations, and if the only hope of the nations is the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me ask you this question. How will the nations of the world ever hear without a preacher? And how could we ever preach except that we be sent? Do you know that without exception, every single one of you, you have been sent with a mission and a purpose And that mission involves making much of Jesus, sharing the gospel, and making disciples of all the nations. You say, Pastor, I I just, you mean me? I'm just an ordinary church member. I mean, I'm no Adoniram Judson, William Carey, Lottie Moon. You know something? They were just ordinary church members too. 
who loved Jesus and, and, and the gospel really got a hold of their hearts and lives. And listen, you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the church spreads throughout that first century world largely through the witness of average, ordinary Christian men and women just like me and you. You think about Romans. I mentioned we're going to look at Romans beginning next Sunday. Do you know that nobody really knows who founded the church at Rome? Was it the Apostle Paul? It wasn't the Apostle Peter, though some would like to think that Peter was the founder of the church at Rome so that they can build the papacy off of that claim, but that's not, there's no historical record that Peter founded the church at Rome. But we do know that there were some God-fearers who were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, citizens from Rome who happened to hear the gospel as Peter is preaching it. And I like to think that they were just regular, ordinary folks like me and you that God got a hold of, changed their lives when they heard the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus, and they go back home to Rome, and they tell their family, and they tell their neighbors, and before you know it, the church is established in the city of Rome. Listen, your, your, your vocation, the place where God has placed you as a student. Some of you students who are in college, you're going to go back to school. Or you're going to go back to high school. Others of you, you're going to go back to work this week and that kind of thing. What if you quit looking at that simply as a means of income and you look at it as an opportunity for mission? Would to God that in 2024, every single one of us would look at the place where God has sovereignly placed us in life and we see it as an opportunity and a springboard for the gospel of Jesus so that the nations of the world could hear. You see, Pastor, how in the world can I be involved in, in, in God's global agenda that you've mentioned? If he's a God who's on mission, how can I participate with him in his mission in the world? I'll tell you how you can do it. Number one, you can pray. Did you know that you can pray for missionaries and missions right there where you are? On your knees, in your prayer closet, you can go anywhere in the world. And you can pray for those who are laboring among the nations. And there are wonderful tools to inform you as, as to what's going on around the world as far as God's mission is concerned. Let me, let me commend uh, Joshua Project. You could go to joshuaproject.net. You can download their app and you can have a reminder on your phone every day of a particular unreached people group around the world. In fact, in my prayer time this morning, I was praying for a particular people group from India. 450,000 people in this people group, among whom there are zero known believers. And that's just a drop in the bucket because there are millions upon millions of people just like them around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. Now, folks, if Jesus is worthy and deserving of the world's worship, I can't think of a better agenda or mission for the church. Listen, don't think that God has a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. That's the way that we need to think about mission. Not as it simply being a program or part of what we do as a church. No, it is why we exist as a local church. We exist for the glory of God among the nations of the world, to proclaim the gospel among the nations. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to rest until every opportunity that God's given me, I've used it and leveraged it. Every resource, every opportunity, leveraged it for the sake of Christ among the nations.
Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? John 20, verse 21, Jesus told his disciples, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in light of my authority, he says, Go, make disciples among the nations. Panta ethne is the Greek term that's used there. It means all ethnicities, all people groups, all nations. Go, share the good news of salvation. Baptize those who believe in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those commands that he gives us, he brackets between the promise of his power and the promise of his presence. And so as we scatter, and we're the church scattered in just a few minutes, we go in Christ's power, and how good it is to know that we go in Christ's presence. This week, God's going to lead someone into your life that you may have the opportunity to share the gospel with, to pray with, to share the love of Jesus with. Maybe you'll receive a prayer letter from a missionary via email this week. And let me ask you, instead of just overlooking that, would you just stop and read it and then pray right there where you are for what God's doing in that person's life and how he's using that person? You may have an opportunity to give financially to support that missionary, to join in partnership with hundreds and hundreds of other believers who have a similar passion to see Christ magnified among the nations of the world. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the wonderful truth from this passage of Scripture that we see represented in these Eastern Magi, Gentiles from the East who come and bow down before Jesus. And Lord, how it's a picture of the world and the nations of the world that will all one day come and bow the knee before Jesus Christ. And Lord, when I think about lostness, And I think about people in my own family and circles of influence who are only one breath away from an eternity in hell. Lord, may that motivate us to be on mission with you in the world like never before. Lord, my prayer for 2024 is that it be a year of us as a church taking seriously the mission of God in the world, both in terms of our giving and in terms of our going. Would you use us, Lord, as simple vehicles and instruments for your gospel? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.